Good evening. You probably heard me even asking questions. Is this time to go? Am I on signal here? So welcome. I'm so excited um, that we have a wonderful guest to talk with you this evening. And as probably many of you know, her name is Grace Cavallari. And it is my honor to welcome Grace as this year's Ammerman speaker. And I am so thrilled that Andrew Ammerman, our generous donor, is actually attending from Hawaii. So he's on with us, which is really wonderful. Um, it has been such a great pleasure getting to know Grace as we have planned her visit. Uh, Grace Cavallari is Maryland's 10th Poet Laureate. She is the author of 21 books and chapbooks of poetry. She has had 26 plays produced, most recently Quilting the Sun in New York in 2019. She founded, produces, and hosts The Poet and the Poem for public radio for 44 years on air and now from the Library of Congress. Mrs. Cavallari's uh, was a poetry columnist and reviewer for the Washington Independent Review of Books for 10 years, and she has taught poetry workshops in colleges throughout the country. <laughs> Among her many honors, Grace holds the Association of Writers and Writing Programs George Garrett Award, the Penn Fiction Award, two Allen Ginsberg Poetry Awards and the Folger Library Columbia Award, the Washington Independent Review Lifetime Achievement Award and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Silver Medal. I am so excited mm -hmm. to hear her talk, writing for my life. Nurses for Community, Grace Cavallari. Thank you so much. I want to thank the Ammerman family for giving me this opportunity to work with these enlightened students this week and this wonderful faculty, Ms. Muffson, Ms. Pocelli, the technical, Sarah Elwood and John helping with the technical. Thank you so much. I've been with some students today and it rocked my world. So we have a great adventure coming up for the rest of the week. I call this talk writing for my life because writers are writing for their lives. Writing is the reason we understand the world. Writing is our mainstay. Writing is our reason to go on. Writing is a way we clear chaos and get clarity from chaos. And I was wondering why it is our life force. And I believe that happiness is fleeting. We might be happy when we get a new outfit or an award or a appreciation or perhaps praise or something, a sweetheart. But nothing lasts until the next thing. However, joy is eternal. And it is joy that makes us write. And because we keep wanting it, we keep writing because to get the joy, you have to keep writing. And I honestly think that's why writers keep going. That's my analysis. Now, I was in uh, the first grade this week teaching six-year-olds 
and I asked them uh, what poetry was. And one little girl said, it's feelings. Oh, I was so, I was over the moon. I thought that she would say poems rhyme. I was waiting for that, you know, but she understood what they were. And now I'd like to tell you what I think poetry does. First, I think it rinses off language. If we did not have poetry, we would all sound like some awful daytime television show. Poetry actually invades and infiltrates our everyday language and we don't even know it, but thankfully it does. Now there is a film called The End of the Day that happens to be a, a line from Yeats. And don't you know every newscaster you have ever heard on any news program says, at the end of the day. Well, that's Yates for you. And I was telling the little six-year-olds, what if they had to wear these same clothes every day and never wash them? Well, they thought that would be dreadful, you know. And so I said, well, that's what words are. They get old and they get dirty. Poets have to rinse them off and poets have to make them sparkle. And I believe that. If it weren't for poets, I think we'd all be talking like robots. The next thing poetry does is it, it slows us down. Now, I'm Italian and I could use it. I'm pretty wired, but you can't dream in a hurry and you can't write poetry in a hurry. Poetry is a kind of dreaming. It's a kind of way of meditating, finding out what you feel, discovering yourself. And I recommend writing poetry every morning, whether you show it to anyone or not. It is a great way to get in a beautiful bubble to find who you are. Another thing poetry does, since it slows us down, we get to appreciate nature more because we take the time. Poets are noticing everything. They're noticing the light on the leaf, they're noticing the broken glass on the grass. Is it an emerald or is it broken glass? They're collecting images all day long. It's like living twice. You get to see it and then you get to say it. So noticing things is like being alive. And Buddha says, may we be awake one moment before we die. And to be a writer, is to be awake all the time and to notice everything there is and to collect it. We're not the sources of everything. We're just beautiful funnels that gather stuff in all day long. What people are saying, what they look like, the red tree, the broken glass. Another thing that's very important is that poetry makes us less lonely. Now, today I saw a very good example of that in our poetry workshop. A very bright young woman wrote a poem about being 12 years old and wondering what life was about and being quite frightened about the thought of why and being in human form. And, and it was very courageous because, you know, everyone can use language, but the poet is the one with the courage. So I was quite inspired by that young person. And I made the point 
that she said something that all of us feel, have always felt, and perhaps do now, but we didn't say it. So the poet is someone who says something that other people just think. And then they say, oh, I thought of that, but I never, I never, I never thought anybody else did. So the deepest secret that the poet has and is expressed, then that is the most universal thing, it turns out. So that is what keeps us from being less lonely, that someone else has thought and felt what we thought, and we are not alone. Another very important thing that poetry does is preserves the beloved. We are the memory keepers. Writers are the one that keep things so that they will not be forgotten. Our history's lineage, perhaps. Now, I was asked to go to Patterson, New Jersey, to go to the schools. And I have to say, they were in a very impoverished area, and they were very sad and deprived populations. In fact, the school I went to, the security guard didn't want to go with me. <laughs> but the students were dark. They were very, very sweet. And they were just like drooping flowers that needed poetry to hydrate them. So I talked to them about preserving the beloved, and they got it. They got it. I wrote a very long poem. I won't read all of it, but it's it has some of that in it. It's called... A Poet in the Schools, Patterson, New Jersey. And I asked each of the students to go around the classroom and tell who they would like to preserve in a poem. Just here's a couple comments. How do we go into such a classroom? How do we make an ocean start? How will we find when they fall down what they were running from? If poets, poets would not go there, who would? We preserve the beloved. Raymond wants to preserve his father. He left us. He took care of me. He used to give me a bath. Luanda wants her baby sister where, who is no longer here. Julio wants to keep forever his stepfather who treats him like an equal, like his other son. Voices of the dream on the blackboard, the place behind it opening, opening in a tattered classroom in Patterson, New Jersey. All their bones broken one by one, put back in place, luminous fragments of a poem. Here, take this pencil. I was waiting for you before you were born. All you have is what I give you, a poem that refuses to die. All I have is what you give me, the courage to try. So even little kids can preserve the beloved because loss doesn't come just to the elderly. Now, I would like to talk about some of the elements of a poem also. And I was very much taken with Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, who talked about the balanced life. And he talked about a balanced life being thinking, feeling, sensual, 
and intuitive. It made a lot of sense to me, thinking, who would not want to live an intellectual life of the mind with ideas? Feeling, what would life be out without emotions? Without seeing the bird alone on the branch or the stone alone in the desert? The feelings, like the six-year-old talked about. Sensuality. Who would want to live without a peach pie or the smell of hyacinth or lilacs at your window or the feel of your pillow, the cotton in your pillow, the sensual life and intuition, which is very difficult to teach, but not impossible. It's about knowing how much and how little to say. And that's in life as well as in poetry, how much you trust the reader, how much you trust another person to understand you without having to give them an ax in the skull, in the head, or shake them by the lapels. So thinking, feeling, sensuality, intuition are really dominant in a perfect poem. We don't think of it before we write, but I can see a poem and I can say, well, you know, you're very good on the thinking part, but we need to work on that sensuality. In my own case, that's the case, because I get in my head so much, I forget to see the red tree. I have to stretch my eyes purposely, because that is not dominant to my poetry. So I think that the young, I call them four pieces of the pie, are a very, very good way to, um, to evaluate what's written with young people. And they get it, and they respond to it. Now, I am shifting gears for a bit to tell you that I, anybody who knows me knows that I like to write about women in history. And I write about men too, but I'm really strong about women in history. And I've focused the last 15 years specifically on that. So I want to start with Mary Wollstonecraft. And she was the first woman to write a serious book in English in the 1800s. And when I went to graduate school in 1975, after I had my own four children safely in school during the day, I went on to get my graduate degrees. And I, I was studying 18th century history and English. I came across Mary Wollstonecraft and I thought, oh my gosh, everyone knows her daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, because she wrote Frankenstein, right? And she married Shelley the poet. So she's got a lot of PR, but nobody knew her mother. Now, this was in 75. There's been a few books since then, but there are only a couple of books about her. The woman who wrote The Vindication of Women, who started feminism, and who started the first school for girls in England, and who wrote essays and books, and I couldn't believe my eyes. So she cooked inside of me for 25 years <laughs> until I finally spent a year on her. And I wrote a book called What I Would Do for Love in Her Voice. Now, what made me think I could do this? <laughs> well, historians knew what she did, but I thought I knew what she felt because I knew what it was like to be the only woman in a boardroom, and I knew what things were like. So I wrote a book in her voice, and I have to just tell you a little bit about her. She was born in 1759, and she went to, to London with 12 guineas in her pockets to be a writer. 
imagine she had come from a very abusive family. Now, I would not go to New York with a dollar <laughs> to be a writer, but that was what exactly what she was doing. And she wound up, luckily, um, writing column in the newspaper, the first woman. She wrote argumentative prose with Thomas Paine, William Pitt about the French Revolution. And Edmund Burke, the leading philosopher of the time, had her burned in effigy because she wanted to start education for women. Now, what's not to be interested in there? So I have to say, after I write books of poems, I always write plays about the characters because I already have the backstory. So I wrote a play called Hyena in Petticoats because Edmund Burke said she was a hyena. And in my I have her saying, no, I'm not a hyena because hyenas run in packs and I am very much alone. So um, the play was did pretty was pretty interesting. It was supposed to go on at the Chesapeake Shakespeare Theater last June, but COVID stopped that. But it's um, it's something which is very important to me. But I'm going to read three poems in her voice from her book, from my book, What I Would Do for Love, which would tell you a little bit more about her. I mean, I just had to write about her. So the first poem is called Dear Reverend Clare. Reverend Clare was a clergyman who lived down in the village and who taught her how to read and write. And that is true. However, when I wrote my play, because a play has to have more twists and turns, I have him being a little bit more interested in her than in her language and a little bit seductive. So I had to kind of twist things around. But in the book of poems, this is, this is direct and true. Dear Reverend Claire, you ask if hope gets me up in the morning. I say yes. Not in your house where everything exists, but in mine where all things are lost. The top latch takes the way to the door, and so it is true. As I teach Liza and Everina all that you teach me, you say my child's sense of wonder is coupled with a grown person's knowing grief. And why shouldn't it be? You are talking to a girl with a pencil hidden in a broken cup on top the highest shelf, stained by curdled cream behind a ceramic pitcher where it cannot be thrown away. She became a governess and they didn't like her. She did terribly. Lady Kingsborough, she, she was teaching the little girls they were as good as little boys and she got canned. So um, she met Mr. Johnson who was, if it were not for Joseph Johnson, we would not know Mary Wollstonecraft today because he imagined how enlightened he was to give her a chance to write new columns in the newspaper. So this is how I imagine she talked to Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, uncommon kindness is what I call you instead of publisher. Telling me I am the first of a new genus, I tremble at the attempt. We must not on any account inform my brother or father for ridicule has always been the unfriendliest advice. The October winds blow through London, yet I hear only words exhorting my mission. I must be independent. When a writer writes, the words are taken by the reader, 
but they always belong to the writer. This body, an unwilling recipient for spirit, finally fills with a breath of confidence because of you. My luck is changing. Today I stubbed my toe and to the breaking said, thank you, life. I feel something besides terror. I have a body, a mind, a heart. I invite the world to lay its head on my stomach and listen. Now she jumped into the Thames because the women hated her, the men hated her. She thought she was helping the women, but this turned out that she made their lot worse. And they, of course, at that time, mid 18th century, uh, there was a rule where men could beat their women with a stick as large as your thumb. And that's where we get the saying, um, the rule of thumb today. There's a saying, the rule of thumb. And so that was going on. And the women thought she's rocking the boat. She's making it worse. They turned against her. She thought, oh, if I don't have the women, at least I thought I had the women. She jumps into the Thames River from the London Bridge. Fortunately, her skirts billow her up and a fisherman saves her. But um, she says, even death does not want me. So I'll re read uh, just the last of this book. She's talking, she's in the village square, and this is called Overheard Today. She had written The Vindication of the Rights of Women, and boy, it went over like a lead balloon. A vicious sound, famous lady with her book, telling us how to act. I could not hear the rest and leaned in closer to the murmuring until she straightened, and then I saw she spoke of me. Mary Wollstonecraft, she held my book vindication and shook it at her partner. My face flushed. Were it a man speaking, I would not crumble. But now I fear my dream is uninhabitable. All women are in danger unless we pick the bough from the tree ourselves. Yet a stranger was condemning me in a public place. Why not grant me the courtesy given male authors saying, it is controversial. Her fury ascends in my body. She said I made her quest for survival all the worse. Because I can read and write? Does that give me a masculine mind? Or just a mind? So that's my dear Mary, whom I love so much. And I was so happy to vindicate her. If writers don't do it, who will? <laughs> so um, in the play, I have everything she goes through, but she finally loves her name. And that is this tiny vindication, but it is her acceptance of her worth. Now, I do also write about contemporary women. And as I say, writers can change the narrative. And Anna Nicole Smith needed it big time. Now, nobody is going to remember her, probably Miss Muffs and maybe, maybe Miss Pocelli, but Anna Nicole Smith was a blonde model. She modeled for guest jeans, and she had less networking than Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, all of the stars that have had a terrible life. You see, I think celebrity is a tragedy. 
And in Italian, the word for fame is fame, hunger, fame, hunger. So I saw this darling, beautiful, blonde woman being fed. She had no family, no networking, fed drugs, propped up like a buffoon and made fun of in reality TV. They put her in a bathtub and put clown makeup on her. And it broke my heart, really. And then I saw her on TV when she had her baby. And here she was then, these beautiful cheekbones and this beautiful face that was unruined with makeup. And I saw what she could have been if someone had just photographed her for the right reasons. So I was, I wrote a book called Anna Nicole Blonde Glory. No, the book is called Anna Nicole Poems. And it is actually, she is a bimbo, so it's kind of fun, but it's, it, it is on her, it's in, a, in her corner. But the play that was in New York was called Anna Nicole Blonde Glory. So you can see by the title what I was up to, right? <laughs> so I um, gave her a wonderful life. I changed her ending. Instead of dying of an overdose of drugs, I gave her a nice doctor to marry. I gave her a baby. And I thought, you know, writers don't get much, but they do get a chance to change somebody's story. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I know she was grateful, as I know Mary Wollstonecraft was as well. Now, speaking of contemporary women that I like to rescue, Um, I helped to start a radio station in Washington, D.C. so that I could get poetry on the air because I um, was teaching at Antioch College and I could get poems to 20 people in a classroom or 200 in a lecture hall. And I thought, whoa, I would love 200,000. And why why is somebody else allowed to put cornflakes on the radio? Why can't I put what I think is important? So I snooped around until there was a new station going on the air. Well, the point I'm going to make here is it was an all jazz station, jazz and poetry. And it was the first black um, managed station in the country that was public radio, WPFW Washington. Well, what I'm getting to the long way around is that I met all these jazz people that came into the station in 77 and until 80, I guess. And I met, you. nobody will know these no young people, no jazz. It's America's classical music, but I met Anthony Braxton and Betty Carter and then this wonderful blues singer called Big Mama Thornton. And so I'm going to read a poem about Big Mama Thornton because when she returned to Washington years later, she was not in such good shape. So this is Big Mama Thornton. Last time I saw her, she wasn't so big. Actually, she was downright skinny, singing the final time in Washington, D.C. Backstage, she drank a quart of milk, mixed equal parts with gin, Seagram's, she told me. Then she got the idea. Could I contact the Seagram's people, and then she could advertise for them, and then they'd like her for drinking a full quart a day, their gin? I said, no, I didn't think so. And I didn't think the milk people would like the commercial so much either. She still felt bad about Elvis stealing Hound Dog the way he did. 
even though she was much too much of a lady to say so. Once she talked about it long ago, before she started milk with gin, I guess the drink left a sweet taste in her mouth. Now, I know that nobody in, in undergraduates know Elvis Presley was, but he was a rock and roll singer, and he got millions of dollars from the song Hound Dog, which Big Mama Thornton wrote. She got not a penny from it. So although this is a story I tell, it's a story with a conscience. And I would like to point out that that is one of our jobs, to be the conscience in this world. I'm, I know it sounds grandiose, but every little thing we write should have a conscience, I think. And so um, I'm going to read another poem about that. This is, well, you know, people think poetry is just such a little fluffy thing. It's icing on the cake. We're just doing it instead of playing bridge, right? This is called How a Poem Begins. It's a little thing. Could be the long O's in Kosovo or a woman alone in the street after the hurricane sweeping Honduras. Perhaps we tell of the child beneath the flood in New Orleans or feet bloody from walking the rubble of Afghanistan. Such a tiny voice no one can hear. Sometimes it says, I can't breathe. That's why we write of such little things, insignificant things. So that is one of the things we do. I'm going to shift back to um, the 18th century quickly because I just finished a book on another woman writer called Madame de Stael. She's a really a mess, very hard to pin down. She's not helping me at all. But she was different from Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft was a bohemian. Madame de Stael was like in the court of Marie Antoinette. So she saw things from a different point of view. But she wrote about the French Revolution. She wrote novels, plays, essays. She wrote so much political stuff that Napoleon was terrified of her. She was his nemesis. Napoleon exiled her from Paris. And she spent her whole life as trying to escape Napoleon. Now, I looked up 18th century writers in Wikipedia. No Madame de Stael, all these men. So I thought, mm, this, is my, this is just my cup of tea. So I wrote this book and it was, um, it's still not easy because she's so haughty. I'm having a hard time loving her. And I always tell my students that nobody can love your work more than you do. If you send out something you hate and you think everyone will like it, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. So um, I will end by reading Madame de Stael. I'm still, I think the book is done. I have to say though, when you write about history, women in history, you have to learn history. <laughs> and in Mary Wollstonecraft's case, I spent a long time with the 18th century and I found that cotton came in at the time into London, and that was good for me to know what they wore. I found that the circus came to London at that time. So when I wrote my play, 
Punch and Judy are the narrators. So it's very important to know history to write about history. So I got really into the French Revolution with Madame de Stael and it made me crazy. The Bourbons and the Royalists and the Monarchists and the Constitutionalists, but I just went into her love life. I thought that was easier. So I wrote a book in her, um, of her letters and um, of course fiction based on fact. I mean, I'm imagining what she's saying to, when Marie Antoinette gets killed. So this is one poem. She had many lovers, Talleyrand, many people you don't know in history, but one was Benjamin Constant. He was a French-Swiss activist. They were all working against Napoleon. And um, he was her lover for 20 years, although she was married and he got secretly married. He still stayed with her. So here's a poem from her letters, 1796, Dear Benjamin Constant. For three years you have been my faithful visitor. How could I have thought anything of her other as you stood beneath my window that first night? That time I opened the door that has never closed. All others pale in loyalty and tenderness. And I, I received your contract today to always love, referring to me, the most significant person on earth. I signed my name after your name. The fact that I was the one who dictated your contract for you does not diminish its validity in the court of ecstasy. No, I signed my name after your name with a seal wet for my lips. We need no judge or magistrate to enforce the law that was already bound by our intimacies. Yet I honor the fact that you are willing to sign your life to me on paper. Now I am yours and you are legally mine. That is true. She wrote the contract and signed his name that he was bound to her forever. So you can see she's a handful. She's a piece of work. And I'm having a hard time because she's so haughty. But I'm going to break it down yet. <laughs> so I will finish reading with a poem called Work is My Secret Lover. Work takes the palm of my hand to kiss in the middle of the night. It holds my wrist lightly and feels the pulse. Work is who you'll find me with when you tiptoe up the stairs and hear my footsteps through the shadows. You'll see me lift my arm to stretch and then lean down to put my head to it. Work threatened to die once for all that was left unsaid. So I took to it like a young bride flushed with excitement. Adultery too, yes, I admit it. On all the holidays, when others gathered at the table, I was dreaming of it, making love to the movement of paper, the words from my lips, the feel of it. Sometimes when company came, I threw a tablecloth over my work and set the plates and everyone acted as if nothing were visible, pretending I was the good hostess that I was. While on the Christmas tree, work waited patiently among ornaments gleaming like a groom. I am guilty as charged, for nothing else could buy my feelings. And why would I sell the only thing that ever loved me the way I loved back? But my beautiful, long-lasting, 
faithful lover, my friend who will never leave. Once again, I wish to thank the Ammerman family for giving me this grand adventure this week. Thank you. I'm Grace Cavallari.